Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Our very own Bill Simmons just released his 500th Bill Simmons podcast episode, featuring Bill Hader talking about HBO's new season of Barry, SNL stories, and favorite movies. And for the very first time, Bill is joined by a long-awaited special guest. He also just recorded a new Rewatchables episode on Fast Five with Shea Serrano. And after you listen to the Rewatchables, head over to the Winging It podcast, where Vince and Ken interview the Fast Five star himself, Ludacris, where they discuss his career, his new music, and Fast 9. You can find these episodes and much more Ringer content on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer. And this is a special double-sized episode of The Big Picture. This is a conversation show with filmmakers, and we're talking to a few of them today. The first of which you may have heard of, his name is Bill Hader. He is, of course, the creator, the writer, the producer, and sometime director of a little show called Barry, a show on HBO that we love here at The Ringer. I talked to Bill about making Barry, but more specifically, just about movies, because, man, this guy just knows a lot about film, and he's really fun to talk to. He put me onto a bunch of movies. I think if you're just interested in the wider world of movies and the history of the medium, you'll enjoy this chat. And then right after that, we're going to have another interview with two people I really admire, the actress Mary Kay Place, who you may recall from things like The Big Chill. She was an Emmy winner in the 70s. She's been steadily working as an actress for the last 40 years. And the critic-turned-filmmaker and documentarian Kent Jones... Kent's first film as a narrative filmmaker is called Diane, and Mary Kay Place is the star of that movie. And it's a really beautiful, intimate, complex portrait of a person nearing the end of their life and how things change around them as they approach that stage. So please stick around after Bill to listen to that one. But before that, let's go right to Bill Hader. Delighted to be joined by actor, writer, director, producer, all kinds of stuff. Bill Hader, what's up, man? (laughs) Hey, buddy. How are you, man? I'm doing good. Good. So, Bill, this is uh, a show where we talk about movies, and you made a TV show. But you are like the all-time movie buff. Yeah. And so I want to talk about Barry as kind of a filmmaking property. What do you think? Yeah, it'd be great. No, most people kind of... I have friends who are like, it's kind of just, you know, a four-hour movie that we've broken up into eight. (laughs) Is that how you (laughs) conceived it? As like a... I mean, well... The way we write it, uh, I had never written in a in a traditional TV writing room, writers room before. The only one I had really been in outside of Saturday Night Live was South Park, and so I only kind of knew what those guys did. And it was kind of like their their shows have you know uh, three acts, and so you were kind of just it was never really written in order. It was kind of like, we know this needs to happen. Then at some point this happens. And then towards the end, maybe this happens. And then you're kind of finding scenes that connect these things. And then it all starts changing. Um, so I kind of did that, but with, with eight episodes, I would just put one, two, two, four, one through eight up on the board, whiteboard. And I would just start plotting in, you know, season one, it was like, okay, so, you know, end of episode two, it would be really good if, you know, they had this thing for Ryan Madison and Barry starting to realize, you know, um, he sees his father speak, you know, Ryan Madison's father speak and he realizes, oh gosh, you know, uh, he, he didn't, he had never seen that side of it before, you know, and then maybe it's good if, you know, 
Vasha's following them. That'd be good, you know. And you and then uh, yeah, the the you know the 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 way you call it his um his friends from you know Chris and those guys, the military guys. They should come in around episode four or five. So question mark, you know, war friends here. So you're puzzle piecing, yeah, it. and you're just kind of laying it out, but you lay it out as a full things so you know by eight it's like i just know eight forever just had moss versus barry at the end and we had no idea where that took place or what happened but i i felt and we all kind of felt like they should have she should figure it out you know so we knew that was at the end of eight at the end of the last episode but we didn't know how that would happen is that more similar to the way you'd write a movie i mean i don't know i i mean i i i Everyone has a different way of doing it. Some people, the idea of, out, of outlining is verboten. And then there's people, I think, because a screenplay, unlike a novel, novel can be as long as you want, but a screenplay should be about 120 pages. And when you're structuring a story for film or television, um, there has to be like a structure to it, you know. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be kind of like what we do or, you know, that kind of Billy Wilder thing or, I, you know, where it was every, there's, everything is set up, payoff, everything is super clean and, you know, that. Uh, what, but I, I love that. It's really hard to pull off and that's why I think I enjoy um, that kind of writing. But, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, some of the best movies of Hollywood, especially in the 70s, were really meandering and you didn't know where it was going you know you but they have a structure there you know um being like two great Hal Ashby movies being there and uh last detail for all intents and purposes especially last details just kind of a a road movie it's like a quest movie quest movie yeah. and about these two guys finding their humanity and um and and trying to show this guy a good time before he goes to jail and kind of forgetting their jobs as as and what they've learned is military men and all this and, 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 and kind of shedding their, you know, the, the humanity that they have to repress when they put the uniform on and all that. Um, and it's all very emotional, but when you look at it, it's got a really great structure, you know, has a really tight structure. Now, I don't know if Robert town took that book and, you know, outlined it and, figured it out but it feels that way and so sometimes the the first draft is like an outline you're kind of like you're writing it i've done it both ways where you write a draft to something with no outline and it it's got a lot of inspired stuff in it but it's kind of cranky you know yeah so then you kind of go over it you show it to a friend and they go i'm a little ahead of it there you know this would go here whatever you know and then you you try to you know because you, you want it to feel kind of organic but when you're doing a tv show and you got 30 minutes it's kind of hard to do that because you so, have to keep it tight inside you that frame. Keep it really tight, yeah. And I'm also just someone I don't like wasting people's time. And so I mean, when we got the TV show, I actually went back and watched other TV. But I would, I would, um, would read short stories. Was really good. Of I would watch, I, I would read like Tobias Wolf or Flannery O'Connor, any of these people, and kind of see, just pay attention to the structure, you know, and and. And not that far off the tone of those writers yeah, either. I feel like yeah, on the show too. Yeah, yeah. Good man, hard to find is like a totally an incredible Barry template as far as you get something that's incredibly funny and, and, and very disturbing at the same time. Um, 
But, you know, trying to understand where the emotion is coming from. And I think where Alec Berg and I work so well together is I'm kind of all emotion and he's all logic. And my strong suit is his weak suit and my weak suit is his strong suit. Not that he's not emotional. He is. He he's, comes up, I think, with some of our best stuff emotionally. Um, but it's what we lead with, you know. And I, you know, the great films the thing and, and stories always kind of have those two things for me, you know. Um, you're always going, oh, that is emotionally sound. I understand why that person's saying that or I understand why they're taking that action on emotionally. And then logically, I understand it. Now, that doesn't have to mean objectively logically, you know. Logically, Travis Bickle wouldn't shouldn't shoot up all those people at the end. <laughs> right. But if you have an but, ounce of empathy for the but, character but for him, yeah. that's super logical because he's mad at these guys for having a twelve year old prostitute and and uh, you know and uh, just to be clear, you're defending Travis Bickle. I am fully defending okay. Travis Bickle on this podcast. No, uh, he's he's a monster. But uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's like. I was going to say, you know, I read a lot, but I watched a lot of old movies and the old movies, I felt like the great old movies had their, their, um, their inspiration was more literature and plays than it was like television and other, and, and other movies, you know, um, or whatever life those guys, you know, and girls were leading. <laughs> well, why was, <laughs> so know? why was that influential and or important on the show? Because the, it, the emphasis was on story emphasis was so incredibly on the story the good ones and the storytelling is the storytelling you'd find kind of in a novel or in a in a um play or something where it was just very focused you know um and they're churning them out back then like they had to make so many movies back then so you can kind of watch them and say, oh, this, you know, most of the scenes are driving the plot forward. Um, you know, the best kind of, you know, all, all those movies, you could feel the very clean, they're written like a clean pitch, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're kind of, um, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful life, you know, it's like a very complicated kind of story, but it's like, if you just hear like the very clean pitch of it, you're like, oh my, okay, I see what that story is. And they shot it for that. And it wasn't, it's, was, you know, pre French new wave, pre neorealist, all that stuff. And, you don't have to bring 75 day. years of film history to watch a movie and understand yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You kind of can go, oh, this is, I'm just telling you a story. As opposed to like kind of fucking with the form, which is like what they were doing later. And then that kind of persists. And then in a weird way, if you watch it, then like in the 80s, it all kind of like regresses to this weird place. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's because all steroids, it's and, all steroids explosions. and explosions. And then 90s and it's an amalgam of that. And now it's like, I don't know what it is. But um, but with Barry, it was just... in in terms of just trying to get back to that thing of, I just want to tell a story and you're using uh, the cinematography, the, the actors, the, the production design, the music, everything is in service of the story, you know, and not because not just 
about one of those things. It's all of them coming together to try to push this thing up a hill, basically. Yeah. Were there other movies that you were like, I'm trying to capture this execution, or is that just about the story and the structure of the way you're telling yeah, it? Yeah, just the story and structure. I mean, there's a movie um, that was actually oddly made in the 80s. Um, Predator. Uh, called, what did you say? <laughs> it wasn't Predator? No. It wasn't Predator. Okay. It's a movie called, yeah, Please Kind of Be Five. I went to Miami. <laughs> Um, that really, that's where Barry's all about. No, there's one, um, where's my friend's house? You know, I haven't seen Coke, it. It's, um, Criterion's going to put it out, I think, soon, I hope. It's in the, um, can I ever say his name? Abbas. Kurosami. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. And he made like certified it, copy of those films. Yeah, yeah. But this is a movie, uh, from the eighties and the story, the, in a nutshell, you, 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 um, you open in this uh, classroom, and this uh, little boy has uh, forgotten his uh, homework, his notebook. And the teacher says, I'm going to give you another notebook, but if you forget this again, you're going to get kicked out. And they live in a terrible, you know, uh, it's just a society in Iran where it's like, if this kid gets out, kicked out of school, I mean, his life might be over. So his, he and his friend are talking afterwards and his friend says it's going to be okay and the kid's terribly worried and the kid leaves and then we just follow that friend home and that friend realizes that he has the kid's notebook in his bag and he doesn't know where he lives and he tells his mom i gotta go get the." and she goes go do your homework and it's just the whole movie is just this journey of this little kid trying to get this notebook back to his friend and it's just a, like a perfect movie you just go, wow, all the, just from a writing standpoint, it's perfect. And it's so simple and it's incredibly moving without being overly sentimental or, or pushing for anything. It's just about common decency and, and courage and what you do for people at this little kid and this kind of society where everyone, you know, doesn't really care about him and they have their own problems and they're like, get out of my way and everything. But in his world, if he does not get this notebook to this kid's house, this kid's life is over. Do you know what I mean? And so you, as an audience member, you're so invested in him getting this, finding this guy's house. And um, it's just a beautiful movie. It was on Filmstruck uh, and I watched it like three times. I was just like, I went home and I, I went to work and I told Alec Berg about it. I'm like, you got to watch this because I just feel like a movie like that is what you're constantly striving for when you're writing, you know? So between Flannery O'Connor and Tobias Wolf and this Abbas Kiarostami movie, there's, they're all kind of moral dilemma movies too. Yeah, and I feel like Barry's yeah. kind of has that going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, maybe that's something I'm just really attracted to. Um it's also moral dilemmas just really get the story going, you know, and it's a thing that you could kind of track and keep it, you know, it, it's a good engine for a story and for a character, you know. Um, Was there anything that you wanted to change after season one? Because season one obviously has this incredible cliffhanger explosive moment where we, we're eager to see immediately what happens. But it's also a chance I feel is like a little bit to reset yeah, that was a big question we have is how much do you want to reset and how much do you want to uh, leave it alone, you know? And I, I I, do feel like, I mean, I definitely, you know, there was a huge discussion. I mean, our first day back in the writer's room was like, all right, 
what happened to Moss? <laughs> and everybody was like, I don't know. So, so you don't, when you were mapping season one, you just didn't know where you wanted to go after no, that? No, no, we had no, I just knew, Alec and I just talked about Moss should find out. She should figure it out. If she's a good cop, she'd figure it out. And there was, a, there was always that, you know, you're always a little like tempted to say, well, maybe she doesn't find out because then we can keep this great actress, Paula Newsom, you know, for, forever and everything. And then you're kind of going, again, if you're going for character, she's a good cop. Barry didn't do that great of a job of covering his tracks. He's not that bright. She's going to figure it out, you know? And that was a big deal. That it was just, we just knew they, that they had a moment. And then there was a moment where we go, well, what's, so what really happens is you're writing it and you get to that point in the room and you're like, all right. Cause remember Alec, I initially had it at a house. Initially in season one, Barry bought a house. He bought this giant fuck off cause he has a ton of money um, with that, uh, with Fuchs and he takes all his money and he buys this like massive house with no furniture in it. And Fuchs is like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's just, everyone the, he has a whole class over for a party and they're like what so that party that's at natalie's in episode four for a while that was at barry's house okay and that's why the the army guys came over because barry invited him and then we just decided wow this house is just causing a lot of problems because this is where alec is great he's like wouldn't these people notice it wouldn't they you know wouldn't he pay for it in cash you know you start to go down all the you kick the tires on that idea and it started to crumble so then it was like, okay, let's get rid of the house. He doesn't have a house. He lives in the hotel with Fuchs still. So, okay, what was Natalie's party? Oh, that's good. So where, where's the end, end of eight going to take place? And I remember Alec coming into work and he's like, I think I got some for eight. What if it's, it feel, it, it, uh, it's, it's out in the, it's out in the woods someplace. We just go to a totally different location. It's like out in the, it's Arrowhead, like what you see. And he pitched that to me and I'm like, that's great. I go, it's like one of the daydreams. People, we should do it like they, you think it's a daydream. He was like, awesome. So we were stoked on that. And then it became the question of like, well, how do they figure out, how does she figure out it's him? And we were going around and around. And then it was like, this is what I mean, like that Billy Wilder thing of just, you kind of, you kind of play with what you have. It's kind of, you know, it's like you have only like five G.I. Joes and like two He-Man dolls, you know, and that's it. They have to be in the same universe together because yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what you have. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You just have that. <laughs> and it's like a lot of shows will be like, oh, we're in a problem. Let's buy these mask dolls <laughs> and bring in these other G.I. Joes because we have a problem with the story. And now we have 30 toys that you're dealing with. And it's like, oh, now we have an even bigger problem. Well, now, I don't know what you want to get these toys and these. So it's like, no, fuck that. We can only play with these six. Yep. Right? You don't want the Barry expanded universe. You don't want the expanded version. So it's, it's only these six to tell the story. And when you do that, you you bang your head against the wall and you get really angry. And then you come up and it's like, oh my God, duh. The, he told Kusuno in the pilot, his audition, quote unquote, we just bring that back. And everybody was like, oh, fucking hell, yes. <laughs> you know, and we were all, I remember we all were like so relieved because I'm like, oh my God, that makes total sense that that's what would happen and that would clue her in to, you know, but it's something we've seen. It's something we know, you know. So that's, and that is just like nothing we planned, nothing we thought of. It was just, we were, we wrote ourselves into a corner and it was like, how do you get out? But you have to keep your rules very 
tight. But that's the show, you know? That's, for me, doing a television show, that's the way to write it. Now, like, my favorite movie of last year, I loved Roma. I thought that was great. I don't think he wrote Roma that way. I mean, Roma feels much more of a kind of a, a, you know, it's like a Tarkovsky movie or something, you know? Um, More lawless in the structure. yeah, 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 but more just... You know, just you you lean into that movie. It creates a mood and a universe and a and a, a sense of place and people that you you just you just let it kind of wash over you and then you know just hang out with these people for two and a half hours. You know, um, uh, Shoplifters was another one that was like that, which I liked. Um, so uh, you know, I'm some of this sometimes sometimes this happens where people they kind of make a living doing this and they're, you know, successful in some way. And they think suddenly their view of what works becomes very narrow, you know? And it's like, this is how you make this work. And I can say, this is what works for Barry. And this is what works for me doing a television show about a hit man who wants to be an actor is this kind of work. This is the way we make it work. And this kind of storytelling, but you know, it's not, that's not how every movie or thing should be written or TV show should be made. But that know? feels almost counterintuitive for you too, because of your experience on SNL and on stuff like South Park. And you were talking about how, you know, a lot of older movies are self-referential in a way. And yeah. this isn't that self-referential, but like something like SNL, by its very nature, it has to be referential. You know, it has to be yeah. martyred with all this stuff. So did it feel like an active choice to be like, oh, I want to do something that is significantly oh. different? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, I think it was just following a story. I remember telling Alec, I don't want to play a hitman. And Alec went, I hate hitmen. I hate hitmen in movies. It's just I think lame. a lot of people had that reaction. Yeah, like, I went, was surprised when you I was like, oh, he's going to do a hitman hit, thing? Yeah, everyone went, what? No, don't do that. That's just lame. Um, and I think because I went, no, 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 because I see the tone of it. It's the way you do it. You know, I just think the, the tone of it has to be right. You know, it's me playing it. And if we play it, more in a the, the existential crisis of it and you you make it you know we didn't i didn't i didn't say oh i want to make it like a movie from the 70s or something but um it was more of those kind of things that i enjoyed you know um again it's just the finding weird the weird gray area and and not making the glib kind of body count type comedy that could have been pretty obvious with this idea what about the uh, actual directing because you shot the you've directed the first three episodes of the first season but only mm-hmm. a couple in this new season and, and later in the season what goes into the decision making there did you do, the, well, do it in the beginning because you wanted to control the way it sort of looked and was set up no actually uh we actually made it was a mistake this season me doing them later before we realized them what was good about me doing them early uh honestly was just because i the i'm the alec and i are the two like co-creators and it's kind of good for us to do the first one so everybody kind of gets the you know, the, I don't know what it is. It's just kind of the vibe, right? Instead of, I mean, Hero Mirai is a genius, so you don't tell him to do much, but it is kind of like he's an extension of our, he, you know, he's he's making decisions and and kind of going like, is this right? I mean, is this what you guys are thinking? You know what I mean? And I think it was just better when it's just out of the gate, it's us doing it. So 
people go, oh, I see what this is. The DP, the actors, the production designer, costumes, everybody's like, oh, okay. So then when you bring in that new director, um, which is the toughest job in the industry, I think, because essentially you're being asked as a director in television and some movies now, I mean, some of these big Marvel movies and stuff like that almost feel like television and the way that they kind of have organized things is like, we already have this kind of universe set and you come into it. So it's almost like you've been invited to someone's house and you've been asked to throw a party for a bunch of people you don't know, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and people are going, that's not where the forks are. <laughs> well, our guests don't drink that, you yeah. know? And you're like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out, you know? So it's a very, it's a, it's a tough gig, you know? So we were very lucky where we had, you know, Maggie Carey and, and Hero on the first season and, um, Minky Spiro and uh, Liza Johnson and Hero in the second season where they are just these extensions of us, but they also added their own thing and brought stuff to it that we never would have thought of, you know. How do you pick those people? I've heard you talk a little bit about Hero and obviously he's gone on to a lot of incredible work with this in Atlanta and more stuff in the future, but how do you decide, oh, we wanted Liza for episode six um, or whatever? I had seen a, um, you just meet him. And then um, I actually didn't see her. St- I saw a movie she made with Kristen Wiig, Hate Ship, Love Ship, which I liked. And then, but I, I don't, I didn't, I just met her. And it's so much of it's just like, they get it. You just kind of like, it's like meeting an actor. They just kind of get it or they don't. And she was like, oh yeah, just really cinematic. And doesn't seem like you guys want like, it's the difference between shooting something and covering it, you know? And you want it like, all it shot. It seems like you want it shot. You just don't want to, you don't want to like, you don't want to hose down, as they say. <laughs> Of uh, just like covering everything like that, like television, and and it's like yes, yeah, so you have to have a kind of a plan because we don't have a lot of time. That's the thing I learned just being a movie fan. Was you go, why can't these TV shows? Why why does that movie look so much better than this movie, and this thing looks so much better than this TV show? And can you explain it? Why time, <laughs> time and talent? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just the time you have to make it. It's like you have zero time, you know? It's like I worked on It too this season, or this season, this year. That says a lot about it. Yeah, I know. That's I've a been, Freudian slip. That's because I've been, all I've been doing is talking about Barry and Green <laughs> Press. Uh, this year I worked on It too, and, um, you know, I would tell the the director, Andy Machetti, that I was like, you know, if this was Barry, we would have shot this. We would have to have all this done before lunch. And we were shooting it for three days. Do you know what I mean? They had three days to shoot this thing. And I'm like, yeah, there's no, we would, there's no way we would have be in here for a, a day. You know, it'd be like, we have a scene in a restaurant that we're going to shoot till lunch. And then we got to go to a hotel. We got to shoot two, one scene and this scene in a hotel. And we gotta go outside the hotel and shoot that accent. And then we gotta go into the parking lot and shoot that scene. And yeah, it's just, I think we had one day where we had like four company moves, you know, and, that takes a lot out of the crew. I mean, it's just, it's really hard. You have a ton of pages, a ton of stuff to shoot. So that's why television, it's, it's, you shoot it, you cover it. It's just long lenses and you get the actors in there and you get them going and then you get out because you don't have the time. So to do it and not saying bury some sort of masterful thing, but, uh, you know, uh, directing wise, but to be able to do it that way, way where it does feel a little bit more cinematic you just have to really plan it you know and kind of know and and stick to your plan so like six years ago 
when I was working at Grantland, we ran a story about you. And I was uh, the writer spent some time with you in a video store. And I talked a lot about movies. Yeah. At the yeah. And I remember I edited that story. And I remember when I was editing it, I was like, oh, Bill Hader is going to be a great director. Can't oh, wait for thanks. his his films. But then and you're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> um, but, but you made a TV show and you're talking about kind of the experience of making a film and the amount of time that you have and the amount of care that you can put into it. Obviously, I think Barry is incredibly well made and specifically giving the constraints. It's exceptional. But are you going to make movies? Do you oh, think? yeah. No, I mean, I think. Well, right now, I mean, it's just kind of, it's like SNL. It's like I never planned on being on it. I wasn't one of these guys that, we were talking to Andy Samberg, and he was like, oh, in high school, I knew I, I wanted to be on SNL, you know? And I was like, I had never, I mean, growing up in Oklahoma, it was like just moving to Los Angeles was like huge. That 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 meant you they were going to write an article about you in the paper, you know? But, um, but How many like, of those have you had now yeah, in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah, a couple. Uh, and, but it was the thing at, at that moment that presented itself. And I was like, oh, I should really, Megan Mullally saw me in a show and said, and I'm like, I should really, pers- I'd be crazy not to pursue this. And because I pursued that and worked really hard at it, um, I, I learned so much there that I then was able to bring it into trying to make an, a movie. And, that is what I wanted to do was make a movie, try to find money and make like a, you know, low budget movie. And, um, don't pitch the idea right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I, but no, it was just talking about that and like, Oh, figuring, you know, writing scripts and talking to producers and figuring out that thing. And then, but because I, you know, I'm an actor, um, and I was on television, you know, they, you, when I moved, I got off Saturday Night Live, you moved to back to LA, it was like, you should go meet with HBO, meet with Showtime. So, and I met with HBO and they were like, we loved Skeleton Twins, this movie we were in. We would love to see something like that. Do you have any ideas? And I said, no, not, not really. And they go, well, you should get what, you know, what we got with Alec Berg and you guys, you know, he does Silicon Valley for us. And, you know, I think you guys would be great. And, and um, we hatched this idea, you know, and uh, and so I think it's bringing that wanting to make a movie to a television show. You know, I just I had dinner with Ryan Johnson and he was like, Barry was my favorite movie last year. <laughs> <laughs> was very sweet. But he was like, that was like my favorite movie of last year <laughs> because it is basically a, a movie. I mean, it's taking I had to learn about television writing from Alec and Liz Sarnoff, one of our other writers who writes on um Deadwood and Lost, she's phenomenal. But she was like, yeah, you know, the actual episodes have to have a beginning, middle, and end. Not just, you know, I would want to write an episode that was all just set up for something that happened five episodes later. And it's like, no, 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 you can't do that, dude. You know, so I was figuring that out. I was like, oh, okay, so this... Could you do that on a different show on a different network? I wonder, though, now. Like, if it was a Netflix show or whatever, where people are just, like, consuming it all at once. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't... I like that our show isn't all consumed at once. Mm -hmm. I like that it makes the conversation longer, you know? And it's fun. I mean, last season was fun. After episode six aired, and people were calling me or coming out to me when when it ends with the guys getting shot up in the car and it cuts to black, everyone was going, what the fuck, you know? What happens, you know? And and they were they're so used to being a little binge that they were mad that they couldn't binge. Yeah, you know? and it I was, was like, like a Scorsese moment. It was like electrifying, scary. You know, yeah. And yeah. I was like, yeah, we have to. No, man, you just got to wait. That was what I loved about Sopranos and Breaking Bad. And I mean, the, I don't watch a lot of television. I watch mostly movies or 
Um, the only TV show I really watched is Atlanta, which is probably why I work with Hero and Kyle Ryder, who's our editor, edits that. And this mm. guy, Tao, uh, uh, is, writes on that. He writes on our show. So clearly I'm a big fan of Atlanta. But um, um, And I think because it had that sensibility, too, it's just a similar kind of when I watched that first episode. Even, even the cold open of the first episode of Atlanta, I was like, oh, I love this. This is so my... This is what I would like to do. Similarly cinematic too. Very cinematic and and just they're I mean, even more so than our show, Atlanta, you just feel like they're they're writing things that they want to see. And if people get it, great. If they don't, I don't, you know. I mean, that Teddy Perkins episode was like a fever dream, and it was like, yeah, no, this is just what we want to see. And I I thought it was like one of the best episodes of television I'd ever seen. I mean, I, I texted Hero, I was like, Dude, that was amazing. <laughs> you know, I was kind of speechless afterwards. Um, you know, I, I don't watch a lot of television because I I think it's like this feeling of you have to be part of a conversation type thing. And I'd rather just kind of watch whatever I'm into at that moment and not have this pressure of like, well, I have to be watching this. I'm so jealous you know, of you. <laughs> because I have to be like... And then people go, oh, so if that's the case, then would you, if you hadn't made Barry, would you be watching Barry? And I'm like, probably not. But I, I get, I get why when people go, dude, I haven't seen Barry yet. I'm like, oh, I don't like, no worries. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not one of like, how can you not have seen my show? It's like, dude, there's like four billion TV shows <laughs> on right now that the internet's telling you you have to watch. So some of that is our fault. I'm sorry. About no, that. no, but it's true though. But that you, you just want to like, you know, I, I don't know. It's. I watched uh, was a, a Woman in the Dunes, that Japanese film, which I hadn't seen in a while, and I, I got the Blu-ray of that, and I watched that last night. It was great. You're on your own frequency. I really admire it. No, I like watching that, and then there's something about watching that and then checking in on like the Freeway series, <laughs> The Doctors <laughs> and the Angels, and then going back to the super <laughs> disturbing Japanese movie. <laughs> um only a couple more for you. I was really struck when I saw you on SNL this month. I was like, holy oh, shit, yeah. Bill is so good at this show. Oh, thanks. Do you miss doing that at all? Because um, you you really just like slipped right back in and I was like, oh yeah, he's on the show. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I miss being there, the people there. And it was nice to come on and not have the whole show on your shoulders. If I ever got a chance to host again, I would definitely try to relax a little bit more and try to have fun. I think I get very kind of revved up and I go back and it's, it's like, it's like going home for all the awesome and all the bad reasons. You know, it's like when you go home, those, you, you know, it's so good seeing people you haven't seen in a while and you love all those people there, which I do. I love all the people at SNL, uh, who work there, but, um, is like family, but then it's also family. The other part where those old insecurities creep back and those old anxieties really creep back. Like the minute I exit the eighth floor and you walk out into the eighth floor, just the smell of it hitting me. I'm like, Ugh, I'm going to fail. <laughs> and so it's always this kind of pushing through that, you know? And I think last time I hosted Lauren came down to my dressing room, it was like, you need to relax, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like, well, you fucking just have fun out there. And I was like, yes, sir. So I tried to, you know, do the best I could. Okay, hopefully you go back and you're more calm. You know, I, I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they've seen? You've already given me 
a couple of answers. Oh, I can give you more. You want to you you <laughs> drop some more in there? Um, I just saw Bull Durham for the first time, which what? I've never seen. The I'd first never time? I've never seen Bull Durham and Kyle Ryder again. It's like, you've never seen Bull Durham? Wait, you dropped an Abyss Kiristami movie, Woman in the Dunes. I'm trying to think of what else you talked about in this episode and you had not seen Bull Durham. I had Durham. not seen Bull Durham. And I, I thought it was, it was good. <laughs> and uh, I, I hadn't seen it. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. And What'd you then, like about uh, it? I just liked what, that it wasn't like the sport wasn't it wasn't like a necessarily like a full on baseball movie. It was kind of like you, it's like the way you can't say Raging Bull is like a boxing movie. It's more about what 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 means to be a winner, you know, or something. You know, it said how uh, this knucklehead Tim Robbins character has this natural talent, but he's a complete moron. But you have these other two people who are very soulful and intellectual and have a lot of a lot to give the world, but the world doesn't want them, you know? And I found that like very, I think Kevin Costner, that was like the best I've ever seen him in a movie. He's pretty great in that movie. And, and, uh, but yeah, you know, it's like the, I like that at the end, like he and Susan, Susan Sarandon get to get, get together and then he just leaves because he's still on this quest, you know? And it's like, he's just a loser. You're like, dude, it's not going to happen. I feel you know? there's some synchronicity with Barry, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah, but yeah. I, I, I dug it, you know, and um, and uh, I saw this movie with Sonny Chiba called Wolf Guy, which was kind of crazy and not great. I wasn't <laughs> totally. It's the guy who made these like delinquent girl movies mm-hmm. in Japan, and I wasn't. It's okay. Um, Doberman Cop is the other Sonny Chiba movie I have on the docket that I need to watch, and then. Uh, are you a completist, a Chiba completist? No, I just like watching those movies. I just kind of go like, "What? I need to see most of these. I want to see these Sunny Chiba movies. I want to see the, yeah. I mean, I kind of just get excited by a filmmaker. And then, you know, a couple months ago, it was like Fritz Lang. I just got really excited about watching like More Now and Lang and then watching his studio movies and and I just kind of, it's like you get on like a little rip, you know, run of them and you just want to watch them all and um, are the ones that you can find. What's uh, the one Fritz Lang movie that you would recommend to people? Oh, uh, Hangman Also Die, which is great, which is written by Brecht. Uh, I, that's one I hadn't heard of um, and I really liked it. Um, I haven't seen it. What's it about? It's um, it's kind of a fictional telling of a Nazi assassination where um, it's not. I'm I'm not going to remember names of the actual people in history, but this Nazi uh, high command Nazi guy got gets killed, and then uh, I'm sounding like my dad right now. <laughs> this Nazi guy gets killed, right? <laughs> and that's the nice thing. My love for movies also say it wasn't like a like this kind of like a professor is like this is how my dad and his friends talked about movies, and they were all massively massive fans of it but they would watch like what would be technically an art house movie but kind of like talk about it in a way of of not in a pretentious break way. down the plot but they were like moved by it mm-hmm. you know i remember my dad saw kiss of the spider woman and he was like a truck driver and he's like that's great though these two guys i mean they you know they fall in love and they're trying to figure out their shit and the other guy fucks the other guy over and <laughs> you know and he's just he's so into it you know but yeah, Hangman also must die. Or Hangman also die. It's a Fritz Lang movie. Where this Nazi general is killed, and by uh, this surgeon, and you know it's him, and he takes refuge in this these people's house. Uh, and the, the father of the house is Walter Brennan. And um, these uh, so basically Nazis say you need to. We know someone is housing this criminal. 
you need to turn them over and tell them we're going to just randomly pick 40 men and we're going to execute them every day until you turn this man over. And that's like, that's what I mean. It's like, you're just off and running. So you have like your setup and you're like, that's a massive dilemma. And what do these people do? And they're getting pulled out of their homes and this guy's feeling guilt for it, but he, you know, he did a great thing and you know what I mean? And so it's a, and the way he shoots action is just very raw and very rough. There's some great scenes in it that, um, there's just no music. There's nothing. It's just kind of showing you. You felt with Fritz Lang that he experienced like real violence because the violence in his movies um, is very rough. You know, I mean, you think of like the big heat when uh, Lee Marvin throws the co- the coffee and and uh, <laughs> the woman's face and burns her face. Uh, you're just, I mean, it's just brutal. Uh, but. Um, you felt like it was a guy who had witnessed real violence before, you know? And, and so, um, there's some amazing scenes in that, in that movie. And I was really knocked out by it and I had never heard of it. And I, that, and that, that's always the fun thing about being a, a giant, you know, film fan is you come across something and like 10 of them are okay and kind of fine and it was good. And then you hit something like that or where's, you know, where's my friend's house, where's my friend's house or, um, you know, uh, any, you know, something like that, that sticks with you and you just, and it inspires you to make stuff. People rarely put me on to stuff, but you've put me onto a bunch today, Bill. Thanks for doing cool, this. No worries, man. Thanks again to Bill Hader for chatting. And now let's go right to my conversation with Mary Kay Place and Kent Jones. Delighted to be joined by Mary Kay Place and Kent Jones. Guys, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. You've just described yourselves as Zen and Blabbermouth. I won't say who is who. Maybe you can determine that after you've heard this episode. But you guys have a beautiful new movie. You know, Kent, I'm a longtime admirer of your writing and the work that you've done with film festivals and in documentary. This is, of course, not a documentary that you've made. It's a narrative feature film. So I was hoping you could just explain where this movie came from and, and why you've done it and why with Mary Kay. It just came from a desire to make a movie that was set in a world that I knew when I was growing up, which is the world of my... New England aunts and uncles, great aunts and uncles, truly, because I'm, I'm an only child and my parents were both only children, but my grandmother was the oldest of 10 and they all grew up, uh, uh, northern, northern, northern New York state. And then, you know, they all went through the depression and World War II and some of them had tough lives, but they were all really loving, wonderful and very tightly knit. And, um, it was just the world for me when I was growing up. And so I had a desire to make, put it into cinematic form. I just did. And so it grew over the years and it was cool living with something over a long period of time. Do you remember when it first occurred to you that you wanted to do a story like this? Yeah, I was like 15 or something like that. There's a notebook somewhere no where there's like, a, you know, I drew some storyboards <laughs> or something, you know, that like resembled something like a movie. And Mary Kay, what about you? When did this character come into your life? Um, Kent and I both were on the jury at the Berkshire Film Festival. We're both permanent members. And uh, we got to know each other. And one day Kent said to me, you know, when I saw you in the Francis Coppola movie, The Rainmaker, and playing Dot Black, I thought, that's like my mother and her matriarchal family, that character. And she could play my mother. And he said, I wanted to write a script about her, and I'd like to write one featuring you as my mother. And I went, 
what? <laughs> and a few years later, I in my inbox was the script, and I absolutely loved it. Is that common for you to have a part written for you like that? Over in the past, people have said they've written something and they thought I would be right for it. I don't know that they started out thinking that. But those scripts never, I never connected to them in the way that I connected this, or I, I didn't feel it was really right for me. So this is the first time it's happened where I really thought, yes, this is, this is perfect. Ken, were you nervous to say that? Was that a bold gesture to say, I, I feel like you're the right person to play this very special it, part uh, to no, me? It's, no, it's, it wasn't the right person. It was the only person. <laughs> I mean, I truly could have coped with the idea that you would not have liked it. And then I could have, I would have had to move on a gas, but it's hard for me to envision. No, I mean, I wrote it for Mary Kay. And why and, did, why was it a few years pass before she got a copy of that script? Oh, because I hadn't written it yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told her what I had in mind, you know, and she was just, we were, we were, we're there's, there's this film festival. It's a lovely thing in the Berkshires. That's where the film is set actually, you know, and it's where I grew up and we're both kind of permanent jury members that's a very candy move on the part of the festival director um and so you know at the end of the for the weekend i said um there's something out to tell you you know and so I, I told mary Kay, and um she was praying that it would be good was it always for you to direct yeah oh yeah i had read a screenplay of his that another one that he'd written and it was quite good it was totally outside of the box like diane and an original way of writing a screenplay, but I really liked it. I thought the writing was interesting. So I was, and and also he has a different background than a lot of people that had approached me before. And it, there weren't a lot of people. There were just a few, but. What do you mean by that, a different background? I'm curious well, what your I perception mean, of Ken was. film, a history, and being a scholar in a way of a great number of important films uh, and a student of those films and writing about those films. So he had a uh, wide history of film knowledge to draw upon when he came up with this unusual format for Diane, because the screenplay structure is non-traditional to, to what I've experienced. And was that by design, Kent, the sort of the way that you were building it was to be a little bit left as opposed to going straight down the middle? Yeah. I mean, I believe in plot. Some people claim that they don't, but I don't even believe them. <laughs> I just like, you know, I believe I believe in 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 building drama and crafting it, but I also believe in that what's dramatic is not necessarily what's time tested, you know, or road tested or whatever. You know, I believe in dramatizing what and I'm excited by the idea of dramatizing what's not necessarily deemed dramatizable by everyone. And so I wanted to make a movie that was about life moving a little faster than the living of it at times. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make a movie that deals with, with time passing and with loss in a way that wasn't incredibly sad or morbid. It's just a part of life. You know, it's what it is, uh, with carrying a burden and then seeing how it, and then the strangeness of the burden being lifted from you, you know, uh, as opposed to the liberation, you know, I think if you've been carrying a burden for a really long time and then suddenly it's lifted, it's not just like, Oh my God, I'm free. It's just sort of like, Oh, what do I do now? Cause you're, you know, that's so all those things were very important to me. Yeah, and there's so much unspoken, I feel like, in the script, Mary Kay. I'm curious how it almost feels like 
you wrote a script and then removed half of the dialogue because you have to convey so much about what's going on with this character while not actually literalizing it in a lot of ways. Um, so what is that like for you when you're going through a script and trying to identify what a person's essence is if it isn't always in the dialogue? It was really exciting because um, I had to create a history of this incident that I refer to. Uh, and that I had, it took a long time. I rewrote it and rewrote it just to know what it was for myself, even though we only refer to it in the movie. And, um, and also the way it was written, there's room for subtext. And so, and then it starts to build as we're making the film, that subtext, it grows every day. And there was mystery. I mean, I, in the past, I've been literal about stuff and facts and, and this left a lot of room for the imagination and things to come up from the unconscious that surprised me and I didn't create in my intellect. Uh, And so it was an adventure. And that was exciting. And that doesn't happen often. It did happen in The Rainmaker, which is interesting because of the preparation work that I did. Uh, I worked with dreams and images from dreams. And that sort of is the bridge to the unconscious. But it was really, really exciting. Did you guys find that you were talking a lot about your youth and your family and trying to figure out the character? Or was that just an inspiration for what you were trying to make here? Mary Kay was really interested in it. I mean, you know, and... And in the area and in my life to the extent that it had a bearing on, on you know, the creative enterprise. Yeah. I mean, we did talk, you know, because we were, were very close. And so we got to be, we got to talk, talking about those things anyway. But um, you didn't use a lot of your personal childhood from it because it was based on your friend, the heroine uh, character. Yeah. That's another part of it that's, that's very that's something that a friend of mine went through. The son character in yes. the film. Yeah. yeah. Played by Jake. But Lacey. I did grill yeah. him about his family and his cousins and yeah. aunts and and all that. Uh yeah. And then we we drove around the Berkshires and saw right. the house where I grew up. And even though that's not really a part of the movie, um, we were gonna drive out to the center of the state and you know, but we never really did that. To visit cousins, yeah. but they weren't available. Yeah, there wasn't. Yeah, that's right, and there wasn't quite enough time. There was enough of the flavor that I we we talked about, and then we just created the rest once we were in the environment where we shot. Yeah, there's this conventional wisdom that it's hard to tell a story about an older character, especially an older woman, and that I, that, that somehow makes this different. I'm wondering if it was difficult to get this film made, and if you guys encountered obstacles to getting something like this off the ground. Well, I mean, you know, um, <laughs> I'm not a bankable star. The minute, that's the minute that this, well, the, yeah, she was the first one to say it. The thing is, you know, the minute that the script was written, it wasn't like the phone started ringing. But then, on the other hand, you know, it happened. Uh, it was the first film that was made. You know, I went to my friend Carolyn Kaplan, uh, who used to work at IFC. She's at Cine Reach now, and she's an amazing producer and a great human being. She's the person who put the whole boyhood thing together, for instance, you know. And so Caroline uh, brought Oren Moverman on. Oren and I already knew each other a little bit, and I was a great admirer of Time Out of Mind, you know. And um, then Oren formed a company with um, uh, Eddie Weissman and Julia Lebedev here in uh, L.A., called Sight Unseen, 
and this was Sight Unseen's first movie. And Luca Borghese and Ben Howard, the other producers, that's AGX, that Caroline also brought on, and we were a team, you know. And when Sight Unseen was formed, uh, that was when we got the go-ahead to make the movie. Then we had to figure out the window. So the window originally was opening for April, and then Mary Kay had a conflict, and then it was like, oh, we can do it in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it was like, not, you know, nobody's going to do that. I mean, that just seems like pure suicide. And then Luca called me and said, well, January 9th sounds workable. And I called Mary Kay and you went, yeah, that would work. And, and I was supposed to do Lady Dynamite for Netflix. That's right. And, and we snuck it right in there. Before yeah, we did. We did. That was a potential conflict. Yeah. How long, how many days did you guys shoot? 20. Okay. So that's fairly, fairly 20, quick. Very quick, twenty shooting days, and then we had a day after the the uh, the shooting proper, where the cameraman Wyatt Garfield and the grip and I rode around and did a lot of the driving shots. Mary Kay, how do you pick parts now? Because you're still a very active actor. You've been acting for a lot of years. Are you choosier now at the stage? Are you trying to work a lot? No, I'm choosy. but I do a lot of different kinds of things. Um, I, it's all always about the script. What kind of, does this contribute to positive or negative energy in the world? That's a big one. And it depends. If I've done something really deep and hard, then I go for something lighter and more fun. Uh, because, again, it takes its toll on the body and the psyche when you go deep like this. Um, so I like to mix it up, but it's always just the script. And, and does it move me? Does it, will it be fun? Uh, and what is it? What am? What are we saying to the people? <laughs> if if we're saying something meaningful, right. then yeah, I'm in. Ken, I'm curious. You've had other filmmakers tell you whether what they've done is meaningful over the years. You have relationships with some of these filmmakers. Was this experience what you expected? Did it turn out when you were on that on the set the first day? Were you like, this is exactly what I thought it would be? <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I mean, yes and no. It's, I was prepared, let me put it that way. I was prepared not just um, to make a movie and to enter a set. I was also prepared to say to people, okay, I'm ignorant of this. You have to tell me, show me. But I'm going to, you know, once I learn that I'm going to be able to respond to you uh, in more detail every time, you know. Um, and I, you know, because... I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to waste any time pretending that I didn't that I knew what I didn't. Um, and then, you know, there were certain filmmakers that I know. Olivia Asias, for instance, is just like directing is answering questions constantly, 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 and you're just there and you answer questions and you just respond to everything. Um, it's also just, but it's also, and this is something that that is shared by everybody that I know who's ever directed a film, which is when you are on the set and you feel intimidated by all the equipment, even in a small film like ours, you know, it's a lot of equipment, it's a lot of people, it's a lot of things happening. There's the time pressure, you know, if you go too late and you don't get what you need, then you're cutting into the next day and you have to go to the different departments and get their permission to do, and you have to do the meal penalties, et cetera. So, you know, um, 
all those things can be really intimidating. And guess what? Who cares? Because you feel intimidated and you just do it anyway. And then after a while, you're just like, okay, you know, I'm intimidated now. So what? It'll pass away like a cloud, then it'll evaporate. Then it's just kind of not there because you're just doing it. And, um, I think that there was a day when I was on the set and um, when we were shooting in the hospital when I was kind of saying to myself, ooh, I don't know if I'm, can really, you know, if I'm really up for this. And then I thought to myself, well, it doesn't matter if I feel up for it or not. I, I'm just going ahead and doing it anyway. And that was a great moment, I must say. And so, you know, I think, yes, knowing a lot of people and being friends with a lot of filmmakers is definitely a part of it. And then you know, that preparation, but it's the actual doing of it that becomes the real. I'm struck just talking to you guys since you are friends. You know, I think there's just an incredible scene in the film in which you're drinking alone in a bar, Mary Kay, your character. And there's a moment with a song and the music playing and dancing that is like, feels like real catharsis. And since you guys are friends, I wonder what it's like to work on something that is that intimate and intense even and having this previous, you know, friendship and then doing something that is professional, but also very high tension in a lot of ways. That was an interesting moment because in the script, it's not there. We just had her in the bar and she kind of like gets drunker and drunker and makes a spectacle out of herself. And then when we talked, I think, you know, we both thought something has to happen. I definitely wanted to dance yeah. to that Leon Russell song. and ask Well, you wanted to dance. I wanted to dance. And then the Leon Russell song. When we were shooting, you brought that I, up. I, I asked if we could do the Leon Russ right. out in the woods because I would go home at night and just to relax and exercise, you know, because I had to work on the stuff for the next day. I would dance in the living room to this playlist that I created. And that was one of the songs that just really got to me. It's a great time. record. It's a great yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. And I knew Leon. And so I, um, it was just great to get to actually use that song. But I think our friendship before really helped. But still, I think there was anxiety on everyone's part about, you know, what you said, am I really up for this? And I was worried about, do I have the stamina for 20 days being mm-hmm. in every single scene and coming home every night and working for the next day? But that friendship was I think solid enough even though it was fairly new and we didn't we only saw each other basically at the film festival jury time but not in LA but I mean it it just it was sturdy enough to withhold the moments of anxiety or doubt or whatever that occurred but but passed you know and we all had our moments of doubt for sure but I think Everyone How can you does not when you're, making, when a you're movie? making a movie. You know, it's a really hard process, and it yeah. requires a lot of energy and thought. And being in every scene created this flow and this energy that was really helpful in in many ways. And so things worked out, and they continued to work out. So I think we each got more and more faith in the process as we moved along, and then we were in a steady rhythm. Yeah. 
and it's, it really uh, felt comfortable and and it was fun. I mean, we yeah. here's all this heavy duty stuff, but we're laughing yeah. and having a great time on the set. And our yeah. crew was young and many cases inexperienced, and they worked so hard. Mm. And we had this committed company all working really hard together and it was great that's what's great about making a movie yeah I, I wanted to ask you it's a little bit Pollyanna but was there something exciting about being in virtually every frame of the movie you know that, that doesn't happen to you much I imagine throughout your career because, for most actors yeah because of the rhythm and the flow and the not having to stop and gear yourself all up again and work yourself back into a certain place it just became this continuous rhythm and flow and that was really exhilarating actually yeah there's a there's this radio interview with Truffaut that was conducted right before he died, and he really sounds sick. And I listened to it when I was making Hitchcock Truffaut, and it wound up not using it. It was just like, I can't do this, you know? I think it was actually broadcast. I was just like, man, I, I don't know. But he does, he's talking about making movies, and he says, movie, making a film is like going into a fugue state. You just are, you enter it. Um, and I can't imagine another way of doing it. Um, I suppose that there are, you know, situations where people like Wong Kar Wai, you know, shoot and then stop from years and then shoot or stop for months rather, and, you know, over different periods of time. But still, when you're in the midst of the shooting part of it, you're in the middle of a fugue state and you're just going, going, going. And at a certain point, exhaustion and refreshment and, you know, it all becomes one. Um, what was it like coming out of it? Because you had not really been in it in this particular way. Uh, well, it, I let's just say that I dreamt that I was on set for weeks after I was on set. I mean, really, truly. I had one dream when I kind of like passed out a little bit. And the cameraman and the, um, the grip, Greg, and the uh, AD, Cedric, all picked me up and put me down. And they made sure that I was okay. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, and it was also right after the shoot, it was a very tumultuous moment in my personal life and everything, you know, and so there were, there were a lot of things that were sort of like happening at the same time. Um, and, uh, I went right into the editing and the editing was, uh, the editor, Mike Solomon and I had a great time. What was the most fun part about making this for you, for both of you guys? The fellowship, the company, the collection of people working so hard, all for, creating this story that's exhilarating and just getting to know those people on an intimate basis because we're all crammed together in this tiny little location tight quarters and the the just the fun of the people the humor the the jokes the affection you feel working with these people so in such an intense way you guys premiered the film a, about a year ago, I'm always curious about that interregnum before the public sees something and then you wait for the sort of official release of that. What is that like? I mean, Mary Kay, I'm sure you've been through this many times now, but just that that almost that limbo period that you've been it's in for hard. a year with the story. It's hard. I mean, I haven't been through it as a lead. Uh, and so this had a bigger impact on my psyche in a way because... It was something new for me, and and the until we got the distributor, you worry about it like a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dis- the distribution happened pretty quickly after the film festival, but then went to release it. So you know, 
the year was already packed by the time the deal was really, really done, done. And so it's like, okay, we're going to do 2019, then when? And I think that it's one thing to have a film in a film festival and, you know, the way that we were, um, the, the reviews out of the film festival were great and so were the awards that we won at the film festival. But then it's different to have the film coming out where you know that every you know, it's going to be available in theaters and, you know, and streaming and it's not just the film festival. It's, it's a different, um, it's a different kind of feeling and it's nice. We went to a, a various film festivals across the United States yes. and to Locarno in Switzerland. And it was really interesting. And you went to some other ones as well. Yeah. And you're international. And, um, it's really interesting to see other cultures relate to this film. Mm. I was kind of blown away by that. Yeah, I mean, it's a different relationship every time. Uh, what was a particularly unique perspective on it? Any any nation that, that took it in in a way that surprised you? When my wife and I were in Marrakesh for the, for the film festival there, uh, and... I mean, there was one response to it that was very funny. There was a guy who was like, the film is so bleak and wintry. You know, he was speaking in French. He used the word hivernal. And it was just like, I just thought, I thought, well, it's very funny, you know, but it's like, I guess I'll disagree with you about the bleak part. Um, you know, when you're living under constant sunlight, though, and you're seeing, a mo- you know, I mean, constant sunlight, it's just, it's, it's amazing. That's but foreign terrain. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, when you're looking at a movie where it's winter. But I think that also, um, I was really, taken aback by the number of people who just, you know, came up to me and my wife, who's also the costume designer of the film, um, and really responded on a very, very emotional level to it. And so, um, I don't know whether it was, you know, it's just, you're in the middle of Northern Africa in a very, very different world. Um, so it's kind of another... The, the, the responses in Locarno were were extremely were different from the ones here, but the response in Northern Africa, I don't know, it was very total, I guess, um, for the people who really who really loved it, and there were a lot of them. They were just kind of like coming up to us on the street a lot, and that was great. Ken, do you think this changes your the trajectory of your professional life in any way? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had always been aimed at making films. Always, I just and and uh, it changes the, my perspective on. I, I've never been fond of turning films down. I'm le- I'm even less fond of it now, you know. Um, but it also uh, gives me a different perspective on uh, any movie that I watch. New In, empathy, or to a degree, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, an empathy, and also just like. I mean, I've always been interested in the nuts and bolts of movie making, but until you've made one, you can't really know what all the nuts and bolts of them are. And so, you know, uh, yes, um, empathy and heightened attention, I suppose, to the particulars of how it's made in relation to what the perceived intention is. And Mary Kay, you're a you're a face on the poster movie star now. So what does that what does that mean for you? Is that going to change anything for you radically? I, I doubt that it's going to change anything <laughs> radically, but I'm it's not so... going to go to your head. <laughs> How soon before your Marvel movie? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I really have learned so much from making this movie and continue to learn things. Yeah, uh, it too. started me on a particular journey and I'm still on it. So 
that's the the great benefit of having gone through this process. Guys, we end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they have seen? So what is the last great thing that you both have seen? Hmm. Film festival judges and cineasts and... You're 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 well qualified for this question. Okay, I, I know, and I'm now I'm sitting here going, "Are you talking film, television?" You can say episode? whatever you like. We usually go with movies, but I'm open minded. <laughs> There's a lot of things I think are. I thought Bodyguard was good on Netflix. Mm. I thought for something totally lighter, but went surprisingly deep. Sex Education was interesting. Um. I saw Capernaum at one point, and I thought mm. that was interesting, and Shoplifters, and mm. you don't like those? Yeah, I like them. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, what about you? Um, you know how to recommend films. You've recommended films before. Right. I mean, you know, I saw Elaine May on Broadway and Kenny Lonergan's play, and uh, that was wow. an epical experience, I, I must say. Well. Yeah, that was something. Pretty mind-blowing. Um, Paul... Dan O'Neathan Hawk and True West was pretty amazing as well. Um, so was um, I think in December we went to see the prisoner Peter Brooks play. That was a mind blowing experience. But I've, every Peter Brook production I've ever seen is mind blowing. I must say though that with movies, I recently <sighs> went back and looked at some of uh, William Wyler's movies again, and he just grows more and more for me as a filmmaker. And I looked at The Letter and. Uh, Jezebel, which I hadn't seen in quite a while, but I looked at uh, The Best Years of Our Lives again. It's a film that I know by heart. I've seen it many times, but I found it even more shattering than I ever have. Uh, I relate to that film very personally. My father went through you know, the experience of coming home. It's a film that just feels like there are sequences in it that are about as powerful as anything I've ever seen in a movie. Well, I thought Diane was very powerful, guys. Thank you for doing this. Today. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thank you to Bill Hader and Kent Jones and Mary Kay Place for chatting with me for this episode. Please stay tuned to The Big Picture this week. We've got a couple of more episodes coming your way. The first of which is a career art conversation with Rob Harvilla and Amanda Dobbins about a little old actor you may have heard of called Matthew McConaughey. And then later in the week, we're continuing our Marvel Movie Month with The Avengers and my pal Chris Ryan. So please check that out. 